just to remind you of what we're doing as we're uh, looking into the Old Testament, we're going through, uh, we're trying to take our time as, as much as we, we can, looking at how the Old Testament is developing and the story of God's salvation history, really how it's being developed throughout the Old Testament. So there's two aspects of our study of the Old Testament that are really important. Uh, One is the theology of what's going on. When God does something, how does that connect to the grander story of the whole Bible? So that's one of the tasks that we've taken up on Wednesday night is to not just read a book, let's say study the book of Exodus or something like that, but more take a look at what's happening in the book of Exodus in large sections or Genesis, and we'll go on through the rest of the Old Testament and see how that connects to the bigger salvation story that we even sense in the New Testament and what all of this is is really building towards. So that's part of it. The other part is um, sort of tearing down some of the fears that we have as we read the Old Testament because we encounter names that we're not familiar with. We encounter places on the map that we're not familiar with or things like that that perhaps are a bit of a mystery to us. And what I want to do as best we can is unpack those a little bit so that we can, we don't feel so intimidated when we read the Old Testament. And it's not so much of a mystery to us uh, anymore. That's at least the hope. It's a noble goal. Granted, I I get that. But, um, and as we go there, we're not going to be able to uncover everything. We won't have all the answers because there are a lot of mysteries in scripture. And so I don't mean to present that we will know everything or this is the key to unlocking it all, but it does, it will help to go through it and unpack it and connect it to the broader picture. And I think you'll, you'll see as we go that, um, that what God is doing in selecting a people uh, out of the nation of Israel and how he's saving them and how he's teaching them along the way and the law that he's giving them is not nearly as complicated as it may seem at first. And actually, when we start to look into it, it tells us a great deal about how we should understand the New Testament. Because you have to remember that all of the people that wrote the New Testament were Old Testament figures, all right? So Paul and Peter and, and James and John and, 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 all, and Jude and all of these people that wrote books in the New Testament, they knew what it was like to live prior to Christ. They knew what Judaism was like. They knew what the temple was like. And so they understood all of these images in the Old Testament. And to them, Jesus made perfect sense. And so I think as we study the Old Testament and unpack it, Jesus will make even more sense to us as well. And so that's, that's mainly the goals of what we, what we want to accomplish. Now, I want to put this up, and I'm sorry, you probably won't be able to see everything that's on the screen tonight, but I'll try to say the words that we need to, that we need to fill in the blanks and things like that. Uh, but the image that I've got up here is a picture or a representation of the tabernacle as near as we can, can get it. And so I just want to bring to mind, look out, here comes need for sunshades, uh, when we look at the, the temple, you have the court of the tabernacle around the outside. You have the tabernacle itself. And then on the inside, you have the, the holy place. And then you have the holy of holies here. The holy place would be the place where the priests can go, but no Jew can really go. And then you have in here the holy of holies where the high priest can go, but no other priests can go. Just as a reminder, um, uh, because it's kind of important as we we talk about this building of the tabernacle tonight. Now remember some of the things that we've talked about so far. Currently, as we're kind of progressing through the timeline, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, are at the base of Mount Sinai. And this is happens right about Exodus chapter 19 and on there at the base of Mount Sinai. And they're getting ready after about a year of being there at the base. They're going to get ready to leave. God's going to direct them on to the promised land. And so at the base of Mount Sinai, God comes down and actually dwells on the crest of Sinai. And there's one person that's allowed to approach the crest where God is. And we see Moses 
playing that role. And the priests, led by Aaron, are able to come up onto the mountain, but they're not able to go up any further. And the people are relegated to the base of the mountain. And so what you see at Mount Sinai is this kind of three-part division on the mountain, which, as we will notice in the tabernacle, in the building of the tabernacle, well, there you have a three-part division there as well. Because the question is really going to become, as they prepare to leave Mount Sinai, well, what's going to happen now? God's dwelling on the mountain, and we're in more or less the presence of God. Moses more closely than the people, but We're in the presence of God. So what happens if we pick up and we leave Mount Sinai? Well, what we're going to see is the tabernacle is coming in to say, I'm going with you. I'm going to to go with you. I want to be with my people. So um, that's kind of what's happening. Now remember, um, like Adam before, Israel is given this charge of being a kingdom of priests. So their objective is to take the kingdom of God and to spread it abroad. They're a kingdom of priests, meaning that they are going to give other people, the nations of the world, access to who God is. So as they travel through the wilderness, or as they eventually set camp up in the promised land, or as they establish the temple in Solomon's day, their goal is to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles will, the idea would be, come flooding into Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, they would have access to God himself because they have access to the temple. That's the idea anyway. So Adam was initially charged with that. We saw he had dominion over the earth. He was to take the Garden of Eden and spread it and essentially be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. And he failed at that. And so in his failure, it led to a whole cataclysmic result that ended up with them being ensnared in sin, God crafting a people for his own possession, saving them, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, and now they're here at the base of Sinai. Last time we were together, we saw that God had given the people of Israel ten commandments, two tables of the law, the first five dealing with how we relate to God, and the last five dealing with how we relate to man, which is where we see, we see Jesus comes up with the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, but is the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. What he's doing there is summarizing the entire Ten Commandments, which the Ten Commandments are a summary of almost the entire Old Testament and what God requires of his people. And so we've established, we've been given the Ten Commandments, and now we're moving into this building of the tabernacle. And this building of the tabernacle can be sort of one of those mundane pieces of Scripture that frustrate us so much. Because from Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 40, you have pretty much the whole thing filled with descriptions on how the tabernacle should be built and then a near exact copy of them building the tabernacle to the specifications that God gives them, that gives Moses there at the base of Sinai. And so what we see is um, that God gives instructions to Moses at the very beginning here in, in Exodus 25 on building the tabernacle and how they should build the tabernacle and gives them specific instructions on how they should do it precisely. Now, why is it that God wants them to build a tabernacle? We've talked about this a number of times. Why is it? So he can dwell with his people. So God gives them these instructions, and we see that the reason that he gives them the instructions on building the tabernacle is so that God may dwell amongst his people. He tells them that in Exodus 25.8. You can see it on your verse list there on the back. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. I told you. That's why, he wants to, that's why he wants them to build a tabernacle, so that he can dwell in their midst. Now, what we also see is, and we saw this in the Ten Commandments, when God gives them the Ten Commandments, you remember the first two commandments? What are they? No other gods before me, and no graven images. What we see is that in the Ten Commandments, God not only is giving them the commandments they must obey, he is very particular on how he is to be worshipped. 
unlike the other gods that the pagans worship, and all of the people that they're going to encounter are going to have gods as well. And all of those people that they're going to encounter are all going to have graven images of those gods. And in fact, the land where they came from Egypt all have graven images for their gods. And so it's very countercultural for God to say, you are not to make an image of me at all. I am not to be represented. Now, if you just think about this for just a moment, Israel is the only nation that doesn't do this. They're the only nation that will be punished for making a graven image of their God. Think about that for just a minute. Where else would that come from but divine revelation? How does a culture spring up in the middle of the desert with no one around them but but pagan God worshipers who have graven images, and here you have a culture spring up in the desert, come out of Egypt, and they are not going to make any graven images of their God. You think about how foreign that would be? Okay. Um, one, of the thi- one of the reasons that the, the picture of, of the tabernacle is so extraordinarily detailed is, be- is precisely because God cares how he is to be worshipped. If you notice, when you read through Exodus 25 to 40, everything is lined out, down to the littlest detail. The materials that are to be used, who is to make the curtains, uh, what, what person is to, what thread they're to use when they do it, how they're to go about building, what order they're to build it in. All of these things are precisely mapped out. And it tells us the same thing that the Ten Commandments tell us. God cares about how he is worshipped. He, he cares exactly how he is worshipped. It's extraordinarily detailed. Now, one of the blanks that I, don't, that I forgot to put on the keynote, so I'm sorry, just, you're just going to have to forgive me. Extraordinarily detailed is the, is the blank there that you're probably, you probably can't see because of the jungle scene behind me. Um, there is a repetition of these blessings. I want you to go ahead and look at Exodus uh, 25, verse 2. It's on your, on your list there. You're going to see uh, three things that come up as far as when they begin to make the tabernacle that I think are really important. And, um, and again, this isn't on the slide here, so but just bear with me. Exodus 25, 2 He says, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man, listen to this, whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This is actually extremely important, but the the blank there is that uh, the, the tabernacle depended on willing hearts. So that's the first blank there, on willing hearts. You see that in 25.2. Look at verses 3 to 7. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Very expensive. And fine twine linen. Very expensive. Goat's hair. Tanned ram skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, um, very, very expensive, for the ephod and for the breast piece. So it, it, it depended on willing hearts, costly giving, costly giving. It, it was expensive, and they were supposed to give all of these things. It was, it was expensive, but again, it was dependent on the willing hearts. And I'm going to tell you why this is important in just a moment. Um, and then look at verse 9. Um, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Meticulous obedience. Meticulous obedience. So it, the building of the tabernacle had all three of those components come in. Now, why is that really important? Well, especially the beginning here, the willing hearts. If you go just a few chapters forward to Exodus 32, and if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. Exodus chapter 32. You remember what Exodus 32 is? Just, if you think about it, what, what happens in Exodus 32? Anybody remember? 
something bad. What is it? Yeah, the golden calf. I want you to notice something, though, about the building of the golden calf. Look at verses 2 and 3, how it's different than the tabernacle being built. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. What's the difference there? What is it? It was all of them, right? It was, it was all of them, and that it was mandatory. You, you bring it to me. Because that is what the pagan version of a deity requires. Everything from you. And what God requires of his people, no, 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 are willing hearts. Notice that. That's, that's, I think that's a, there's a strong parallel. Uh, uh, that's not parallel. That's a opposite, whatever, that's being, that's being made there. I think that's really important for us to observe is that God is requiring of his people willing hearts and that's not what Aaron requires of the people as they seek to replace God or seek to provide an image for God. Um, the construction of the ark, um, so you have, you have pretty much three big pieces that are being made here of temple furniture that are being built in Exodus 20, or that are being described in Exodus 25 and following, and that are being built in Exodus 35 and following. But you have the ark, the table, and the lampstand. And what do they do? They precede the construction of the tabernacle itself. And I think that's also important. You, you, um, we, so the tabernacle, this big tent structure and this surrounding courtyard and everything like that, seems to be this house made by hands. And what we find in uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament is God says, I, I don't live in a house made by hands. But what is the tabernacle? What is the temple but a house made by hands where it seems that God dwells? But these pieces of furniture are actually going to be representations for the people that God is in their midst. Okay? But you notice they're built first before the tabernacle is even built around them. So they are representations that God is in their midst. Indeed, on the mercy seat, we're going to see that God actually dwells there. And yet, the tabernacle is built around him. Okay? It's not built for him. It's built around him. Make sense? So it's, it, I, even the order, I think, is very important. So we get to the Ark of the Covenant, and we see that it's a, a, a box, and it's made of acacia wood, and it's overlaid in pure gold. And it's described in detail for us there in Exodus 25, 10, and following. He says, They shall make... An ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make uh, a, a, on, on it a molding of gold around it. All right. And so then they're also told uh, on the top of it, you shall make a, a, a mercy seat. He says in 2517, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. And so on top of this box of the Ark of the Covenant, you have this, what is just referred to as a, a mercy seat, which actually means the atoning or the making of atonement. That's what the term for mercy seat there used actually means. It's this making of atonement. And it basically comes from the Hebrew, which means to cover over. Okay, so you have this idea presented that on the top of the cover of this box is going to be that which covers over the sins of the people, where the blood will be sprinkled on the mercy seat and it will cover over. This is the idea that in the New Testament we call propitiation, which is the idea of either covering over or satisfying the wrath of, uh, of God, basically. That the priest would take blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, thus making propitiation. And so what you have here on this um, 
ark is its cover, and then inside the cover or inside the box is a testimony. And I, I think I have that down here, if I'm not mistaken, 25, 21, and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony I shall give you. And listen to this in 22. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony... I will speak with you and all about, about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so on this box, uh, the ark and its cover, there's this kind of, and the testimony, they're all part of the same, the same piece. And on the top of it is where God actually comes to meet with his people. So basically what's being taught to us in just the ark of the covenant is that God meets with his people on the foundation of his law and his atonement. So he meets with people at the conjunction between his law and where he satisfies his own wrath on behalf of his people. You see this? This is the purpose of that box. And the reason why it sits there is so that he can remind people, look, my law is important. And it is the foundation on which you will serve me but also you can't meet it. And so satisfaction for my wrath is going to have to come in order for me to meet with you. So it's a crucial piece there in the Holy of Holies um, that's, that's there. This is a graphic representation of what it would be like. Um, probably some details are wrong there. Um, yeah, there is a testimony about, uh, of the law which he will give. And so the law is going to go in there. And the, ta- the tablets, I think, are in there as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they will be, but they haven't been given yet. Um, so, okay. Um, rods that are to be carried, uh, you use to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Um, this would be the box made of acacia wood laden, laden with gold. On top are going to be the cherubims which guard the mercy seat, which would be right here. We don't have instructions on the mercy seat. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but it, this is it. And perhaps it was just nothing. Oh, so that's not the chair. No, no, the chair. What do you mean, the chair? Never mind. Never mind. No, this is where this is where the voice of God would be. And in fact, Moses is going to say, "Well, the Bible is going to tell us that that's what Moses heard, and that's where he heard the voice from." when he went into the tabernacle, was from the mercy seat. Just not picture. Just not picture. We, we, uh, that may have been it. We don't, we don't know. We're not sure. There's, there's some sparse details that we're not quite sure how those really fleshed out. Even when it comes to the candle we're going to see, is uh, we, we have a ton of details there, but we, we probably can't reproduce it exactly. For instance, the, the candle that is going to be in the tabernacle is uh, what well, tells us the weight, and I can't, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it, it's, a, it's a ton of gold, and it's supposed to be made of, of pure gold. It's not laden with gold. It's, it's hammered out, and so it's a, it's a solid gold piece, and the estimates are that if, if that had actually been made, that it would have been quite tall. It wouldn't have been like this little short uh, menorah that you would see like in Jewish homes or whatever, but it would have been like this really massive piece of, of furniture that would have been in the in the tabernacle, and the way the blossoms were on it, we're not quite sure exactly where they were positioned, but uh, we can get a pretty close representation. Same is true of this. It's, you'll see, if you look them up online, you'll see different variations because we're not quite sure exactly where the poles were and that, that sort of thing. Is that right? <laughs> wow. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> just, let's, just, let's just leave it there. <laughs> uh, uh, lest it fall and one of us turn to ash. Okay, um, <laughs> where, where are we? Um, on the back here. Um, yeah, the, now there's another piece of furniture, and it's the table of the bread of presence. And he, here's the, the reality when it comes to the bread of presence. Um, in pagan temples, you will find that they have tables with food on them. And do you know what that food is for? Take a stab. To feed the gods. The gods get hungry. And in, in fact, uh, Babylonian 
uh, creation myth tells us that the reason that the gods, their pantheon of gods, created humanity was because the gods were tired of searching for food. And so they created humanity so that humanity could go and farm and produce food and then feed them. And so in their temples, they would bring the food and they would put it on the table. So some people reason when the tab- tabernacle is created and you've got this table for the showbread, well, here's the showbread. And isn't that just the same kind of Eastern, you know, uh, Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern religion that would, you know, provide food for their gods? And that's absolutely not the case. In fact, the bread of, the, of presence or the showbread was there for the priests. It was for the priests. The priests were there to eat. Now, why is that? Why were the priests given the sacrifice meat and the, and the bread? Why? why? What's that? They didn't have an income. Their income depended solely on the people, basically, and the, the, pe- the people worshiping. And so they, they would bring in their sacrifice and the priests were allowed to eat from the meat and they would have the bread of presence there in the, in the tabernacle and they were allowed to eat from the bread at the end of the week. They would consume all of the bread. It was there for them. Now that bread is there to remind the priest who's working in the tabernacle that as long as there is food on this table, I, who, am, who is your God, am your portion. I am your portion. And I will provide for you. The bread is there to remind the priest of God's presence. It wasn't there to feed God. It was there because God was feeding them. You understand the difference there? Big difference. Huge difference in what's being communicated in the, uh, the presence of the bread. We see that even in, uh, the, I've got the passage down there of 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. Uh, that's where David goes into the tabernacle to take the showbread because he's hungry. He's God's anointed king and he's on the run. And so he goes into the, to the tabernacle and he takes the bread. And the, the priest is like, I, I, I guess you can do that. <laughs> can you do that? I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but he does. Uh, all right. So um, the reason that I bring that up and uh, against like the uh, Babylonian myths and the ancient Near Eastern religions and things like that. And the reason that I tell you about uh, the other one that we mentioned a minute ago of them not making a graven image and uh, even of them having, making propitiation over the, the mercy seat and God's presence dwelling with his people. There's a book that I think is really important. I, di- I didn't necessarily use it for this worksheet, but it's called The Bible Among the Myths. The Bible of the, among the myths. Good grief. The Bible among the myths. And it's by a man, last name Oswald. And basically he goes through great detail to show you how the Jewish religion came out of a vacuum. I mean, a complete and total vacuum. Every culture around there worshipped completely different than the Jews. Thought of the gods as totally different than them. Um, This idea of being created in the image of God is a completely foreign concept in the history of mankind. In the history of mankind, there is only one figure in a society created in the image of God. You know who that is? What is it? The king. The king of a culture is the only one made in the image of God. Everyone else is his servants. And so that's the reason why the king can make laws and demand things of you and demand that you serve him. Because he is made in the image of God and what he says goes. And he can decree things and they become law. And here comes the Bible out of nowhere saying each and every human being is made in the image of God. Do you know what kind of earth-shattering concept that is? How does that come about from people who are surrounded by 100% of the people in the known world saying only the king is made in the image of God? How does that happen? Except for divine revelation. 
The argument that he's making in that book, I think, is really important, and it's worth noting. It does get a little dense at times, but there are, there are parts, I think, that are, are fairly easy to, to understand what he's saying. And, and it's basically that, that big argument, that there is absolutely no way the Bible comes about being handed down from these other religions or being inherited from these other religions. It has to be divine revelation, and that's the only explanation for how the kinds of, of, of things that are presented in it could, could come about. All right. Um, questions on that so far? Okay, so this would be um, a representation of the table with the showbread uh, here. There were also plates that were uh, laden with gold as well that were to be there. Uh, those aren't depicted because, again, this is just a representation. <laughs> um, this isn't a, a Instagram. Um, uh, so, again, poles are made to, with which to carry it. Everything's portable, uh, obviously. So uh, it's, it's there to remind them of God's presence yet again and, uh, and for them to be able to carry it. Go ahead. Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's the reason that um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a thing. Because, the, and that's why spring cleaning is a thing. That's why we do, or why we call it spring cleaning, is because uh, that was the time period where they would get rid of all of the leaven out of their house. They would clean everything top to bottom and get rid of every speck of leaven in their, in their house, where the other times of the year they could, they could use it and make good bread. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they thought it was good. probably better than ours. Um, so uh, the lampstand is to be made of hammered gold. And you'll see this repeated time and time again. We're not really uh, explicitly told exactly why that, that, that is of, of importance. But the point being made there is that the gold that is to make up the lampstand, there's not, it's not to be a wood base probably for obvious reasons, I would think, because there's fire on top of it. But, um, but, but essentially, um, that, that, that is going to be really heavy. It's solid gold piece. Every aspect of it is to be carved and hammered out. And uh, so one massive uh, branch of gold, all right? And what we see is that the brightness and the fire and the gold is constantly throughout the Old Testament this symbol of the presence of the Lord. So you notice a theme going on here? We have the Ark of the Covenant, and on top is the mercy seat, and God is there. The presence of God is there. You have uh, the showbread reminding the priest that God is present and he's providing for you. And then you have the candle, the lampstand, giving you yet again another sign that God is there with you. Now, you remember that the priests are to tend to the lampstand inside the tabernacle, and they're to never let the fire go out. That's one of their chief responsibilities. Waking and sleeping, tend it two times a day before you go to bed when you wake up. Make sure that there's enough oil in the lamp to keep the fire burning, because the fire on top of that lamp symbolizes God's presence there with his people which was a big problem when they ran out of oil and what was it, one something B.C. and we have the Hanukkah miracle for eight days, the oil lasted even though they were out of oil, right? So because the light going out on the lamp is a sign to them that the Spirit of God is no longer with them. Okay, so remember that. Keep that in your head because it's going to be really important when we get to Pentecost and when we get uh, on forward is this, this idea of fire being the presence of the Lord there ever with his people uh, as the priest continues to tend to um, the lamp. Okay, and that lamp uh, of the tabernacle burning continually serves as that, as that reminder of God's constant watchfulness over Israel. God's constant watchfulness over Israel. Now, this would be something like what it looks like, potentially could be taller, uh, but I would, that would probably be, this part would probably be about up to my chest somewhere, that, that's probably about right. Um, so a pretty tall piece of furniture and ridiculously heavy. Yes, ma'am. What's that? I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. 
I'll have to look it up. It's a good question. I've never thought about that. Um, so what we have on this on this uh, this lampstand here is the petals, uh, the the blossoms. So it's it's, it's buds or. Um, uh, Bible calls it something, something else. And I can't, the name's not escaping me right now. But buds of the almond blossom, the leaves of an almond blossom, and the fruit of an almond blossom. And those were to be ornately designed, we think, to be able to hold the oil that would then fuel the burning of the, of the lamp. And so the priest's responsibility was to make sure that it was filled with oil and that the wicks were trimmed appropriately so that it would constantly burn and it wouldn't burn out, uh, symbolizing the evacuated presence of the Lord. Uh, amongst his people. Okay. Questions about that? Right? <laughs> so they have in Israel um, a, a museum on the edge of the Temple Mount where they have the, uh, the furniture for the third temple. So the, they want to build the temple on top of the, uh, on top of the, uh, the temple. Temp- Temple Mount is the word I was trying to come up with. And uh, they have all the furniture there prepared for it. And so you can go in and you can see the lampstand. You can see the, the box and everything like that. And I missed it the last time I went, but I won't miss it the next time. Uh, I will certainly make sure we go whenever we go in March of next year. A group of Jews that are, I can't remember their name. It's like, let's call them like the Third Temple Society or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. They they have uh, they're prepared and they're they're ready for when it happens. They're gonna that's the furniture that they're gonna use. Now whether that actually ends up getting used if it's ever built, yeah, when it's ever built, I I don't know, but um, they've got it ready, so you can go in and you can take a look at it. So there it is. Um, now uh, there's some interesting parallels as we begin to kind of move from Exodus. And we begin to look at the biblical picture as a whole. Um, so you, you take into a, on your packet that I gave you, there is a third little attachment here. And I won't go through all of it because of time. But, um, but you can take a look at it when you get home. And you can l- look up those scripture references. But basically, there is a, a strong case to be made of the parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle slash temple itself. Um, there's a, 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 a good argument to be made that what Adam is charged with doing is, is he's essentially becomes the first high priest, essentially, of God. And he's charged with uh, keeping order and producing order, tending to the garden, which is essentially what the high priest would do, is, or the priest would do, is tend to the tabernacle and keep it ordered, and that he was to guard uh, the, the tree of life, which essentially becomes kind of the inner sanctum of the holy of holies. But what happens when he uh, takes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he lets something unclean into the garden, he takes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he sins. And what does God do? Cast him out of his sight, right? Well, the same thing is told to Solomon as Solomon builds the temple. You will guard and you will keep. That's exactly the same thing that's told to, uh, to Adam is that he will guard and he will keep. And when that term is used, the guard and the keep, when they're used together throughout the Old Testament, they typically refer to the action of the priest that he would take inside the, the temple, is that he would guard and he would keep the temple. And so not only is he charged with guarding and keeping, he's charged with guarding and keeping the commandments of God, which are there sitting inside the, um, the box Ark of the Covenant that are sitting there inside the Ark of the Covenant. Not only is he supposed to guard and to keep all of the things that are going on in the tabernacle, he's then to turn around, the priests are, to the people and to guard and to keep the commandments in front of the people, to teach them rightly and to tell them how to obey the commandments of God. And so Solomon and his sons are told, you are to guard and keep. But when you don't guard and keep, it's in uh, 1 Kings 9, 6, and 7, he tells them, I will cast you out of my sight. 
The same thing he tells to, to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then when that happens in Genesis 3, 24, he kicks him out of his sight. He says, I have to get rid of him. He, he's out of my sight. He says the, basically the exact same thing to Solomon. And so the, the argument being made there, not only is, the, is that true, but the Garden of Eden is facing to the east. So is the temple always to face to the east. There's tons of parallels that are to be drawn here between the garden and the tabernacle. There's some blanks you'll see on the garden side. That's because... Um, when you look at the temple tabernacle side, it says like in the first one here, it says the account in 1 Kings 6 and 7 of the temple construction includes a proliferation of garden-like descriptions. Well, that's, the reason I left the garden side blank is because it's a garden, right? So it's kind of obvious. Um, but then the, the, so it's, it, you have all of this garden imagery that comes forth in the building of the tabernacle all that's, and, and the temple, all that's inside the temple and the tabernacle. It has this garden-like image. And it's, there's a strong correlation that the, one of the reasons that the, temp, the tabernacle and the temple, um, the instructions were so specific and ornate is because basically what's happening is they're a portable Garden of Eden. So remember we, we saw that God's presence, they're basically removed from God's presence after Adam is kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And on Mount Sinai is really the first time God introduces himself back to his people. And then he has them build a tabernacle. And there's the, there's the connection between what Adam is charged with doing and what, what Israel is charged with doing. But they're not only to do that, they're also to usher people into, essentially, the Garden of Eden, the portable Garden of Eden. And so that temple on top of the Temple Mount becomes the, the shining depiction of the Garden of Eden that people are welcomed back into. Um, it's the sign of God's presence. It's, um, so anyway, there's, there's just tons of imagery that's presented there as this temple and tabernacle being essentially a mobile Garden of Eden. Questions? Okay. Now, let's move into the New Testament just briefly. There's tons of stuff we could talk about here. The list goes on. But the Gospel of John connects the imagery of the temple and the tabernacle directly to the person of Jesus Christ. You'll remember this, I know. John 1, 14, on the back of your verse list there. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that's used there for dwelt is the same word for tabernacled. It's not a coincidence that John uses that word. There's a number of different words that he could have used there to communicate the same kind of idea. But he didn't. He used that word. And why did he use that word? Because we saw that the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God. We saw that the showbread is to remind the priest of the presence of God. We saw that the candle stand, the lamp stand, that's always lit is to remind the priest and everyone else of the presence of God. And then John says... The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He, became the, the, he is the literal and physical presence of God amongst His people. So Christ became flesh, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Then Jesus Himself will later connect His own body to the temple. In just one chapter later, in John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, we know from Matthew, from John, from various other, all the other Gospels, where they say, and they understood him to be talking about his body, his, his very body, that he was going to die, he was going to rise from the dead, and that he was going to resurrect in three days, and he is the temple of God. What imagery is that meant to to connote, to, to bring to mind. But the literal and the physical presence of God. But then it goes a, a step further. The New Testament also teaches us, let me go to the next one. The New Testament also teaches us that the, the veil that denied access to the most holy place was torn during the crucifixion. So Jesus dies and, and, and his uh, essentially spiritually blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, satisfying the wrath of God, becoming the propitiation for us. And the veil between God and man tears from top to bottom. And access to God is now had by all. Prior to that, we, were, we, we as people would be allowed into the courtyard 
And we could look as the curtains were drawn back during the daytime and we could see the lampstand burning. We could see the showbread, but never could we see the Ark of the Covenant. We couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. But once Christ dies and satisfies the wrath of God, curtain, the veil is torn from top to bottom. Never again should we need to require some other form of access to God. All right. Now let's take it one step further. Jesus then actually makes it possible for his people to be the tabernacle or the temple of God. And so Paul argues this in, six, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify, your, glorify God with your body. So he makes the argument that now, not only is Christ the, the temple of God, but in dying and giving us access to the Holy Holies and giving us access to the Holy Spirit, sending a helper to us, we actually now are the physical presence of God, His body here on earth with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We notice that in Pentecost, the tongues of fire come uh, rushing over the apostles, the representation of the Holy Spirit. Where do you think that comes from? That's the candle, the lampstand that's in the midst of the holy place that is now appearing on top of his people. That the people that have received the gospel and have believed it, his apostles, are going out and preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. And why do they have the Holy Spirit? Because they are the temple of God. That's where that comes from. But then it, it goes even further when you look in Revelation chapter 1, just in the few moments we have left here. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven lampstands is probably the sevenfold lampstand, right? Are the seven churches. Why? Because the churches have the Spirit of God in them. But we also see if you back up just a few verses, there is one who walks amongst the lampstands. And who is that? What is it? The high priest. He walks amongst the lampstand. Who is it in Revelation chapter 1? It's Jesus himself. And what does he tell them? I will snuff out your lampstand. I who walk amongst the lampstand have authority over the lampstand. The priest would have the golden tongs that were there to trim the wick, to snuff out. It's the snuffer. That's what it is. It's designed to snuff out the lampstand. Remember, this represents the Spirit of God that is in the midst of the people, the nation of Israel. Well, now it's the, the church is the living embodiment of the Spirit of God. It's, it's within us. And he walks amongst the lampstands. And why will he snuff it out? Well, he tells you in chapter 2 and chapter 3, as he goes through the seven churches, he warns them, repent or you'll die. Repent or I will put you out. I will snuff out your lampstand. No longer do you have the presence of God there amongst you. Millie? They would bring their sacrifice. And there were times where they would confess their sins publicly, but they would bring their sacrifice and the priest would confess the sins of the nation on behalf of the nation. And so the, the temple became a slaughterhouse. That's what it was. It was, a, it was a slaughterhouse. And hundreds of thousands of sacrifices were, were killed. And um, in 70 AD, the year that the temple was destroyed, the sacrifice total was like 270,000 uh, animals sacrificed there on the Temple Mount, is what Josephus tells us. So, the, the, yes, that, that was the priest on behalf of the people confessing the sins of the nation. 
uh, before God. But th- that's essentially Jesus' role now. He is our high priest who has made propitiation for us and who sits as an intercessor between God and man, the only intercessor between God and man, still as our high priest. So the, the warnings that are given to the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3 is uh, doctrinal fidelity and faithfulness to live out the Christian testimony. And if you stop doing those things, I'll snuff out your lampstand. So the church is charged with preaching faithfully the text of Scripture and living it out. We call that orthodoxy, right belief, correct opinion. Orthopraxy, right practice, correct practice. And so that's what we're charged to do now. But yes, Christ has made that for us. But yes, that's what they would do, is bring the sacrifices before the, before the priest. Um, I don't think there was an individual one-on-one confession. Here's my lamb, and here are all the sins I committed. But the priest is confessing the sins on behalf of the people. So, so the priests that are in the outer sanctum are receiving all these slaughtered animals. They're slaughtering them. Right. Yeah, and the butchers. the high priest gets to select from all those yeah. Yeah, he's walking into the Holy of Holies and doing his stuff. Yep. 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 You said orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That's right. A X Y. Correct. Practice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. I believe that's right. Timothy, you have to speak loud. I can't hear you. that we won't get into tonight. We'll cover slowly over time. But uh, um, anyway, let's, uh, let's pray and then let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for an opportunity to come together and just discuss deeply your word and uh, what it means and what it means for us. Uh, how thankful we are that uh, we have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And though we don't know what to pray for as we ought, we know also the Holy Spirit intercedes on behalf of us with groanings too deep for words. And so we trust in that, not knowing what we ought to pray for. And so we are so grateful that we have help, um, that what the gospel requires of us, it also supplies in the Holy Spirit. And we have help um, from him uh, in our daily life, and uh, as, we, as we go about our daily life, as we live, um, we are so grateful for that. And we are thankful for the sacrifice that Christ paid on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.